This is Scott Liebrecht, and you're listening to the Cinematography Podcast. The following podcast contains explicit language. You're listening to the Cinematography Podcast presented by Hot Rod Cameras, a program about the art, craft, and philosophy of the moving image and the people who make it happen. Coming to you from the world headquarters of Hot Rod Cameras in Hollywood, California, are your hosts, Ben Rock and Ilya Friedman. Hey, Ilya, how's it going? Hey, Ben, it's going okay. How about you? Awesome, awesome. I, I can't wait to get into this interview today. We brought up Jurassic Punk, the documentary Jurassic Punk. And uh, as it happens, I am actually friends with Scott Liebrecht. I haven't seen him in, a, in several years because he lives up in Seattle now. But right after we did it, you were like, hey, let's see if we can get him on the show. And uh, we talked to Alana and she's like, yeah, let's see if we can get him on the show. And then I reached out to him and he was like, yeah, fuck yeah, I'll do the show. So, uh, <laughs> Bing, so bang, there you go. Boom. Just like that. Done. Just like just like that. We got Scott Liebrecht on. And I feel like it couldn't be a better week because it just got announced that Scott Liebrecht's first feature, Midnight Sun, is getting a Blu-ray release Ooh. this week. Nice. Um, yeah, it, it just came out. Our mutual friend and his producer, uh, Matt Compton, just kind of sent out a, a big thing about it. And it's very different than Jurassic Punk. Jurassic Punk is obviously a documentary about the VFX industry. But I think Midnight Sun is a damn fine uh, horror film. Mm. Like, it's it's really well done. Great characters. A lot of people compared it to the George Romero movie Martin, which... You know, it's maybe one of Romero's lesser seen, but it was like Romero always said it was his favorite of his own films, uh, like a really cool character study vampire movie. So uh, check it out if you get a chance. That sounds awesome. Uh, I'd, t- I'd totally check it out. And now Close Focus. Hey, uh, Ben, it is time for our close focus, but unlike other weeks where sometimes we're, you know, grasping at what the uh, the topic du jour is, we have an embarrassment of stories to talk about. W- where would you like to start? Oh, man, yeah, it's a big close focus roundup this week. So as we're recording this Tuesday night, this morning, we found out that a humongous assortment of A-list actors sent a letter to SAG-AFTRA, basically encouraging them to take a hard line after SAG president Fran Drescher, yes, that Fran Drescher from The Nanny, she the president of SAG. Um, Sorry. Uh, no comment. Uh, when After Fran Drescher said something publicly that made it sound like they were uh, making real progress on the, on the negotiation. And again, big actors like Meryl Streep and Jennifer, Jennifer Lawrence, Lawrence yeah, and yeah. Rami Malek. You can look it all up. There's a variety article we can link in the show notes that also has a link to all the actors. And it's a huge number of actors. You can also read the full text of it. But basically, it's A++ list actors basically saying like the SAG membership has already had an authorization vote to go on strike if they decide to go on strike. And so they're basically saying to hold the AMPTP company's feet to the fire. Make sure they get the best deal possible. Yeah. Well, yeah, because I feel like a lot of a lot of people in this business believe that we're sort of at an existential crisis moment. And if they don't push harder, that it's already hard to make a living in this business, as you and I both know. And it's about to get harder if SAG doesn't take a harder line position. So anyway, this all comes down the same week as on uh, last Friday, I believe. The Directors Guild, which I am a member of, voted 87% to ratify the contract as proposed by uh, the AMPTP or by as agreed to between the AMPTP and the Directors Guild. I don't really think I'm allowed to say what the Directors Guild does behind closed doors, but they had their annual meeting last weekend and I went to it. They had it at the Beverly Hills Hilton, which I'd never been to. Mm. Uh, yeah, fa- yeah, fancy pants. And they did that because it, is be- because it has more seating capacity than the DGA Theater and they knew that like a giant chunk of their membership was going to be there because people are... Uh, Unemployed. Well, they're but they're very concerned about about the yeah. deal that the DGA just struck with the AMPTP company. So more interesting days to come because the Writers Guild going on strike. I was talking to an editor of a TV series who will remain nameless, and they were saying that uh, because of the Writers Guild strike, they're editing shows that were written before the strike, but they're not allowed to change one word. Mm. Yeah, I heard that the Fritz Lang television series also got shelved. 
because uh, writing wasn't uh, finished, and it sounds like that's never going to come to be. That was a Sam Esmail project. And so, oh, man, that's another, bummer. Another, I know. I was really looking forward to it. Uh, okay, well, there, there's other stuff going on, too. California lawmakers just ratified incentives for the subsidy program for, for film and the state. And I know this is a, a topic near and dear to your heart in particular, but they've outlawed live ammo. They've outlawed, you know, not live ammo, live guns. They've outlawed well, blanks yeah. on set. So, yeah. so I saw that. But it's kind of a redundancy because the DGA deal that just got ratified also bans live ammo on set. Well, I guess uh, if you do it in California, you're doubly screwed now then. So that's yeah, I mean, that's like, I mean, I should talk to some of my friends who are armorers to see how they feel about this, because the people I know who are armorers are the safest people on earth. They're really, I mean, like, this is what they do for a living. It's their they, livelihood. Yeah, absolutely. But, but they, have, also, they have to take but, it super seriously. They take great pride in how seriously they take the safety on on set. And I know that I've come on here many a time and railed against having live ammo on sets and how I would prefer to not have live ammo on set. But I also and, do feel and we're talking about blanks as yeah. live ammo. We're not talking Correct. about actual bullets. I mean, because, you know, uh, there is actual gunpowder and parts of the shell. The shrapnel can yeah. fly out of the barrel. I, I just want to make sure that anyone listening understands that a blank is a live round. That is real gunpowder that is that is used to fire something. And even though they're not intending for a portion of the bullet to fly out of the chamber, sometimes that happens. Well, sometimes that happens as it did well in uh, with uh, the crow, which was in what, 1993 where a dummy round was put into the chamber behind a blank charge and it basically turned it into a bullet because mm-hmm. the armorer was dismissed and it was just a props person doing it at that point. And Brandon Lee was killed on set. Yeah. And then, of course, you know, the tragedy on the set of Rust. Uh, just Which was to, actually live ammo. Yeah. That, that was just a, a freaking yeah. bullet. Yeah. And I feel like the Rust thing is what's made everyone talk about this. But I also feel like there hasn't been a good reason to have live ammo on a set for a long time. But at the same time, I do think that it's worth mentioning that we're ruining the livelihood of armorers who like their whole job is to make firearms handling safe. And the jamoke on the set of Rust should not be in anyone's mind this, the industry standard of Far what armors. Yeah. Yeah. Hundreds, hundreds of movies and TV shows have been using live ammo thousands for decades yeah. and decades and you know we haven't had a serious issue since the crow but that being said i still am there, pers- there's been pl- personally against plenty it. of close calls plenty of people who were shot i mean they're just they weren't killed i mean that, that yeah. is i mean there, there's lots of people who did get injured so I'm, i don't want to minimize it and uh i, I know no people who were who were hit by uh you know shrapnel it's, it's oh nothing, i mean it yeah. happens and yeah. and i i always say too like under the best of circumstances every time you pull out a blank gun you've just kissed away 30 to 45 minutes of set time because you have to safety everything. You have to put up plexiglass. You have to give out uh, earplugs. You have to put plywood in front of stuff. You have to have a safety meeting where everyone discusses exactly what's going to happen. And it's a time suck. It's an unnecessary time suck if really what you're getting out of it is less than one frame of muzzle flash and and some smoke and uh, a little bit of verisimilitude out of a gun that's making a big loud noise. Yeah, it's it's quite a verisimilitude tax. And, uh, yeah, and I feel like one. you can always just take that care and work a little harder with your actors if you're working with airsoft or similar guns. I wonder if armorers, I guess you don't really need an armorer per se if you're doing everything with airsoft guns, though. You know, probably not. But I actually wouldn't mind talking to an armorer on the show. I know that they've got to be really against this, but I, I think that it's uh, I, I don't think their job goes away, but I think their job completely changes because really their number one priority was safety. And now, in theory, uh, everyone should be safe. So, yeah. And I, I, I also wonder if you're making like a John Wick kind of a movie that is just full of gunfire, if you if there's a way to get a waiver for it anyway. Yeah, I don't I don't know. Uh, hey, we should also talk about Brad Pitt's Plan B. They just inked a deal to develop a, a, a audible project with Bradford Young. Bradford Young? Bradford Young, friend of the show, cinematographer. Yeah, Bradford Young. Amazing. Uh, yeah, he shot Arrival. He shot Selma. And if you haven't heard the interview with Bradford and you're listening to the sound of my voice, go find it and listen to it. He is a fascinating person. It's a two-parter. An amazing story. And we always talk art, craft, and philosophy. We always tell people that's that's our focus. And I feel like Bradford leaned heavy into philosophy. And not as many people do that as you would think. We should also mention Julian Sands, who, famous actor, uh, was just discovered. I guess he was uh, hiking solo in in a remote area of California during the winter. Mount Baldy, yeah, was when we had the serious, we were having serious storms and he's been missing for 
you know, whatever, five, six, six months. Five yeah. months. Yeah. Well, uh, they did confirm that they found him very, very sad for his family and everyone who was a fan of Julian's hands. So uh, actually, you yeah, know, I actually met him once. Uh, Janelle Riley, who we've had on the show many times, introduced uh, me to him uh, briefly oh, at a party wow. or something. And he was a very nice guy. Well, uh, I have relatives who do solo camping and adventuring and stuff, and we always tell them, make sure you let everyone know where you're going to be, because, uh, yeah, that's a, that's a scary thing. Well, yeah, what uh, happened was, too, like, it was just unprecedented storms in California this year. It was like, 10 feet of snow up there. It's yeah. crazy. Yeah. Uh, okay, so moving on, one last order of business, and I will, I promise we will cover this in more detail, but I attended VidCon this last week, which is sort of the industry conference event for new media, digital media, streaming media in relation to social media. So uh, like, you know, the YouTubers and stuff of the world. And uh, it's very interesting the way it's set up, and there is a very uh, savvy industry track. So I think with the headlines of VidCon always is like famous YouTubers show up and then a bunch of people in the community level pack into these places and hear them speak. And then there's a second level, which is the creator level, which they sort of like, you know, creators helping creators like learning how to do stuff. And then there's the industry level where it's just where I spent all my time where they really talk about the business. And I have to say, I have been a tourist for the last, you know, decades sort of following this. I couldn't really understand the business models. I mean, I've certainly, you know, uh, laughed and mocked at, you know, the demise of Quibi. I think we all kind of picked that one, Mm -hmm. you know, not thinking that was actually going to be a real thing, but also sort of like the MCN that which some studios paid huge, huge hundreds of millions of dollars for and what kind of value they actually got out of them at the end. I couldn't really f- understand the the economics of social media up until this point and sort of the, the confluence of traditional media and social media coming together. But I will say that after this year's VidCon, I now actually feel like I have a very clear picture and understand it. And so for the first time ever, I'll be able to actually give like a real in-depth report and maybe I'll play some clips of some of the uh, sound of the show and oh my god there was like a lot of talk about like vice going under and the reasons for vice going under and same thing with like buzzfeed and so there's a bunch of stuff that i can pull into this which i think will be pretty interesting and we'll save it for a future episode but coming up real soon yeah no that sounds really cool i'd love to talk more about that all right so then why don't we get to the interview here we go here's scott liebrecht the cinematography podcast interview so I'm here, and by here I mean uh, talking from LA to Seattle, yes. correct? With my friend Scott Liebrecht. Scott Liebrecht is an amazing director. He directed a horror film called Midnight Sun that if you haven't seen it, stop what you're doing and go check it out. It's really awesome. Scott is a storyboard artist. He's been working in the VFX world, but he also directs films, including Life After Pi, which was an amazing documentary about the downfall of Rhythm and Hughes and sort of the downfall of the VFX industry in general right after Life of Pi came out. And you have a new movie that is out now called Jurassic Punk that I just thought was a phenomenal character study, but also a great film history lesson. So thanks for coming on the show. Awesome. It's good to be here, Ben. It's been a long time. I know. It's, we've, it's, we've, we've known each other for a while. We've seen a lot together. <laughs> we've seen some shit. Yeah. Yeah. So, well, let's start by talking about Jurassic Punk because I've been hearing about it for a while and it, it played South by. You have a background, obviously, in the visual effects industry. You're not in there, to my knowledge, coding. You're not doing what Steve Williams was doing. Uh, you're an artist. You're you're an amazing artist. But what got you into the VFX industry? Well, I was uh, I was studying and getting a degree in industrial design mm-hmm. in Cincinnati, Ohio, at the University of Cincinnati School of Design. And while I was there, there's an internship program or co-op program they call it that has you go and work at corporate companies as an intern for several months and then come back and keep doing your work at the university. Well, one of the local companies that would hire industrial designers was Kenner products, which was, you know, obviously the place that did all the star Wars toys. And, (laughs) and I got an internship with Kenner products. And at that point it was 1992, I think. And I walked in to see dinosaurs everywhere in this, on the design floor and they were stan winston's maquettes and so i'm like why are there the actual ones yes they cast uh stan winston shop cast maquettes to send off to kenner so that they could make the toys based off of those those maquettes so i was like what are all these dinosaurs here because no one had heard at all anything about some movie called jurassic park coming out or that it was coming 
And so that was my first exposure to sort of how tightly intertwined Kenner was at the time with the movie industry. And that was when I started to learn more about what goes on in the movie industry in terms of design. And that was when I found out that Charlie Bailey, who was a model maker in the ILM model shop from the 70s on, uh, was a graduate of my university and my exact industrial design school. Oh, wow. I found out that he's this alumni and I'm standing here at this university, the same university that this guy that made the Millennium Falcon, you know. Oh, that's crazy. So that kind of opened my mind up to like, oh, wow, there's a lot more possibilities for me in the movie industry than I ever imagined. And that was when I kind of switched and decided to start tailoring all my work toward design for movies. And so that's when I started learning about how to do storyboards and how to really design things for uh, visual effects and animation. Wow, that's incredible. I, I didn't realize that, you know, doing Jurassic Punk sort of brings you full circle with Jurassic Park, that that sort of sparked your interest in it. Yeah, it did. It kind of started it all. And so it was incredible to see Jurassic Park when it opened because I was such a effects geek, like a total like mm. reading Cinefax every episode or every you and me both came I, out. I, yeah. I, I talk about it all the time. Yeah. And so I was one of, I was, I was a total like weird guy in my friend group because no one else knew all these sort of Hollywood secrets of how they did these effects and how they do these effects. So on the day that Jurassic Park opened, I went and saw it with like six of my friends who don't know anything about effects and the you know the first brachiosaurus comes out on the screen and i started crying because <laughs> because i was i knew that what i was seeing was a watershed i knew it was it was all going to be different after this movie and they were like what is wrong with you <laughs> and, I, and i was i was just trying to explain to them through my tears like you don't understand what you're seeing is not a guy in a suit it's not a puppet it's nothing that was ever physically made. It's a computer graphic and it doesn't exist anywhere except on the screen. And they were just like, what? Shut up. They didn't believe me or whatever. <laughs> and so, so it was, so it was weird to see this, the first thing ever that where you were like, where I, somebody who really knows how these things are done to see something where you're like, there is no way that's a puppet, but yeah. also at the same time, saying to yourself, there is no way that's computer graphics because computer yeah. graphics were not that. Up yeah, it was Super Mario Brothers 3 yeah, you know, at that time, yeah. you know. Or Terminator 2, which is like, you know, Chrome, well, you know. But which Terminator 2 is, was, I remember going to see Terminator 2 with a friend of mine because I, I wanted to be a makeup effects artist and I was for a few years. And I went to see it with a friend of mine who was into that stuff as well. And when T2 was over, he looked at me, he's like, well, we're screwed, you know, and I was... Yeah. What was I 19 years old when that movie came out? So like, I was like, well, I guess I better find something else to do with my life. Yeah. Um, I remember having to sit down out in the hallway of the theater, like on the floor after T2, after watching T2, <laughs> I was so blown away. I couldn't even move. Like it was so incredible. So yeah. Yeah. Those were, that was an exciting time. Like those three movies, oh, yeah. it's Terminator 2 and Jurassic Park. Which you cover extensively in, in Jurassic Punk. And they do have one big thing in common being the main subject of your documentary. So before we get to him, though, what were the next steps you took to get into the VFX world? And did it ever occur to you to become one of the people who is writing the code or creating the VFX? You know, because to my knowledge, you pretty much always stayed as a concept artist and a storyboard artist and paper and pencils. I'm sure at some point you maybe switched to a Wacom tablet or something, but still an illustrator more than a... Uh, a guy who gets in and, mess and mucks around with code. Yeah. Yeah. So I ended up applying in my final year at the university, applying for an internship at Lucasfilm and specifically in the ILM art department. And I ended up not getting in the first time I applied and then I applied again. And the second time I actually got the internship. Oh, wow. So yeah. And so that's one thing everybody should know is like, don't let the first time they say no, be the last time you ever try. So yeah. always try more than once. Anyway, the um, that was a three month internship where my mind completely opened up and I was had access to archives and flat files of artwork of you know, all the movies of my childhood. And I could see all and how it was all constructed via these little scratched out pencil drawings on storyboards or concept art that was all yeah. done with traditional medium. 
Um, now Man, in the I would department. shit my pants if I saw oh, it was, stuff. it was insane. I'd be there till midnight, just going through all those files and just absorbing all that artwork. Wow. And so it was then that I started to realize like what it was going to take to maybe get a job there, a full-time job there. And they were using Photoshop in the art department at that point, but it was, I literally started using Photoshop as it was Photoshop version one. So there was no layers at that time. There was no, there was none of that. So there was no like filters or different like ways to make a layer appear a certain way. You know, so it was so it was exciting because there was very few people who even you know knew how to use these use computers at the time or use obviously use Photoshop at the time. And so I was like that kid that was like coming into production meetings with concept art that you know I'd kind of I had one meeting with Nilo Rodis who is the, the the creator of the designs of the um all the ships in Star Wars and he was oh my god he was art directing or production design on the green mile and I came in to show him my concept art for the effects in the green mile oh and wow I'll never forget him kind of like looking at the art and then looking at me with this like how the fuck did you do that <laughs> and I was like wow I'm impressing Nilo this is awesome that's so awesome it was it was a, it was a cool time because again like all this new digital stuff was just not in anyone's wheelhouse except ours at that time and ILM was just this complete monster in terms of being having command of that stuff and if you get an internship at a place where you're working with your heroes you're going to realize they're just human beings and that's when you your own mind can start open up, opening up about your potential because it was in, incredible for me to be in a in a meeting with Tim Burton or anyone who was who I thought was a god and knew exactly how to get what they wanted and for them to be looking at me and going will you please help me <laughs> yeah. like like I don't know what exactly this should be this is something I need you to figure out was like me going like wow you know he's just he's just like any of us trying to yeah. find, they're just like any of us trying to find our way through so it's easy to like idealize your heroes and think they're just they have total command of everything and like they have all the answers all the time and then when you start working with them and you realize no they're just people trying to find their way through a through a problem just like anyone uh, it really makes you kind of start to go wow what more could I do what levels could I reach that I'd never never thought I could or never even imagined I could. So it's kind of, it's really great to do, to have experiences like that, where you actually go where your heroes are. When I was actually called to a meeting where Steve Williams was going to be in the meeting and this guy walks in that looks like a mechanic, you know, with a greasy shirt and acting like, yeah. a, you know, that just the, the most like insanely macho kind of guy you can imagine. Yeah. He's like a, for, you know, for people who haven't seen the documentary, and please just go see the documentary. It's on Canopy. You can watch it for free. But uh, he's a big, tall, broad-shouldered, man's man kind of guy. Like, I picture him with a beer in his hand. Yeah, and like an auto mechanics kind of shirt. Five seconds into your interviews with him, you can see he's a major intellect, but that's not, he's not wearing the costume of that person. That's right. You know, at the time, one thing I want to mention too, is at the time, there was kind of a problem with finding talent that could run the computers or use the computers that also were really good artists, that were artists, yeah. traditionally trained artists. There, there seemed to be this big problem at that time, and it makes sense, that traditionally trained artists wouldn't go near a computer. It's all the coding and math and yeah. calculus and, and, you know. And like the computer guys were not people who ever had any interest in art. They were just interested in like solving these problems of shading and, and lighting and rendering and modeling yeah. and all that stuff. So Steve was, a, was an extremely rare example of someone who was trained traditionally as an artist, but could also run the computer. And, that, and so he was kind of one of the first of those who actually knew how to do both. And yeah. so, and I think like his interest in, in trying to figure things out and deconstruct things and disassemble things in a funny way was the key to his success in that world. But when you apply deconstructing and that power of deconstructing and disassembling things to a system that you find yourself under, a guy like Steven will immediately start to go, why is this happening to me? Why is this happening to these people I work with? Mm -hmm. This system is weird. This system is not, you know, set up for us. It's set up for them. That kind of stuff is what would sort of haunt him the more he worked at ILM, the more mm. he experienced that 
bureaucracy or corporate nature, which we all know is like typical of all corporate companies and typical of all situations, group situations where there's power dynamics. Well, and also so, the power dynamics in like a Hollywood studio, like it's one thing if you're working at a textile mill and you have a boss, but when your boss is Steven Spielberg or, you know, in this case, maybe Dennis Murin, these are people who are revered and on network television and giving interviews with Barbara Walters and shit. And even another order of magnitude beyond somebody like the kind of guy Steve appears to me based on your documentary. He doesn't seem like he's the kind of guy who would get sucked up into the world of putting on airs. Oh. And uh... well, and also he was he's he's constantly being told, like, this isn't the way we do it. You know, this isn't the way we do it. And that is literally like gasoline on fire to him. Like when he thinks that there's an established system that he thinks isn't working properly he will never stop until it's fixed, until he can fix it or he can at least call enough attention to it that it will that it will so interesting. I hadn't thought about that because like the very same brain that figured out how to make walking dinosaurs is also looking at the the organization of industrial light magic and saying, this is bullshit. Yeah. And so with that, with his swagger and all his sort of, I want to say like, um, you know, let's not be serious for a moment. Can we all just tell jokes for a moment? Can we all just talk about our pets for a moment? That's the kind of guy he was in these meetings. And so as somebody who really wants to humanize the process, he was like the the best person for that. So a lot of people had a lot of love for his warmth at that mm. place because the place was, was ex there was so much pressure that everything had to be about the work a lot of times. I'm not saying we didn't have a shit ton of fun at ILM, but it was also incredibly stressful. And the mm. pressure was on millions of dollars. These are triple A movies. These are going to, these are tentpole movies for studios. The whole world is going to see you cannot fuck around. And if there's one thing we know about James Cameron, it's that he's super laid back and, you know, <laughs> right. just, just rolls with whatever. Yeah. And so Steve was like this really, really amazing presence in a daily session or in any any meeting because he was always it, he made it his mission to try and shake everybody a little bit out of that pressure and that stress and remind everybody that this should this should all be fun we should be having fun and i think that's what a lot of people really loved about him that's that's interesting and that definitely comes across in the documentary now like you as an intern or you as someone who's starting out there did you get did, would you say you became friends with him then or, you know, tell me about your personal relationship. For me, like as an art department guy or as an artist at a place like Industrial Light Magic, it was, we had this really awesome place to occupy in that structure, which was our department, we were allowed to be the dreamers. We were mm. allowed to be the ones who would just go, what would be the coolest fucking thing you can possibly imagine? And then we'd draw it and we'd make our concept art. And then that would be shown to, and we would have meetings about our concept art where people would say, what are you thinking drawing that? We can't do that, you know, or, <laughs> but what it did was at least it kept us in a way in that innocent place or that almost like naive place of mm. just, just dreaming up the coolest shit we can possibly imagine and not thinking about how hard is this going to be? And so I think it was smart. ILM was really smart about having an art department that could not only help the directors and the filmmakers that would come to us create their the things they were envisioning, but it also created in a way a nice paper trail of <laughs> approved artwork that you know they could say like this is what you said you wanted. You know, and so, yeah, yeah. so, so once we start working on it, that artwork, that concept art, a lot of times acted as a bit of a reference point for what was in a way negotiated as part of the deal. This is what you wanted. And so I think change orders might've been a lot easier back then because we were in the power position. There was only a few places, if not just ILM who could do this work. So we had a lot of yeah, eight weeks. Like, were there any real competitors? When does digital domain come in? I know Weta isn't until like the, the late 90s, early 2000s. Yeah. So one of the first things that I remember being impressed with was Weta's cloth on the Frighteners. Oh, yeah. In the 90s. And that was so that was like the first like, whoa, how they wait, we're just figuring out how to do that shit. And they're doing it already. 
Uh, and then I think Sony was the first to sort of lure away Ken Ralston, who then lured yeah. away a lot of people to work at Sony. And Sony maybe became one of the first competitors. But then there just a ton started cropping up by the end of the 90s. So we were quickly becoming a place that was just like most places. Mm. You know, a lot of things I hope that people realize about Jurassic Punk is that it's, it is about Steve Williams as the main character of a band of mavericks and people who were thinking differently. But it also took someone like Scott Ross, who's on the on the sort of business front. Scott Ross was one of the ones who came from video and advertising and understood digital. And so he understood what Steve was trying to do and Mark were trying to do and all the, and he knew he kind of knew that was the future too, but it really took not just the artist. It, it does take other people to also say like, I see it too. And then yeah. it can happen. Scott Ross was one of those guys, but yeah, it was the time of like everybody kind of jumping ship at ILM because they were getting huge offers to work at other places and, and build a similar studio somewhere else. So a little bit back, though, to your personal friendship with Steve over the years, like, were you staying in touch with him over the years? Because you were bopping around, you were at different VFX companies. I think when I met you, I don't think you were at Rhythm and Hughes yet. I want to, I forget where you were. I was doing a lot of work when we met for Imaginary Forces. That's who it was. Yeah. 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 So Kyle Cooper and those guys, they were continually hiring me to do storyboards and concept art and stuff for their commercials and for their opening movie credits and stuff. So that was a really cool place to work in LA. I love Imaginary Forces. I'll, I mean, I think it's the thing that made them was they did the opening credits for David Fincher's Seven. Yes. And it was like the most amazing thing anyone had ever seen at that point. And then they just specialized in doing unbelievably amazing opening credit sequences and commercials and stuff. Yeah, if there's any students listening, they should understand that, that the opening credits for Seven literally changed the way opening credits were made forever since then. Yeah, look at any any uh, HBO or premium cable opening credits. I mean, look at the opening credits for Yellow Jackets. It almost looks like the opening credits for Seven. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that movie still holds up so well. Brilliant, so one amazing. of the best. Yeah. So Steve, so basically here's what, here's how it went down. So I met Steve when I was an intern and then I started working at ILM shortly after as an artist full-time doing concept art and storyboards. And he had a commercial for Energizer, the mm -hmm. Energizer Bunny commercial. And the Energizer Bunny commercial had this little flea jumping around in its fur. And so I did these storyboards of that little flea jumping around inside the fur of the Energizer Bunny. And Steve saw them and really, really liked my style because I was really heavily influenced by Warner Brothers animation and all that stuff, the same stuff that made and Tex Avery and all the same stuff that made him who he is. And so he immediately recognized that maybe kindred spirit in those drawings. And so we met and it turns out we were both kind of straightforward almost to our detriment, honest about <laughs> things. And it was refreshing for a lot of people, but it was also disconcerting sometimes. And so we also had that going where it was like, we weren't afraid to sort of say what we thought and we weren't socially careful. And so I think that that made us liked, but also not liked. It, it's a weird thing when you think about it in a corporate environment, the person who says what they're thinking sometimes is the person who everybody really appreciates and it's a nice breath of fresh air and it's nice that somebody said it and I'm glad I didn't say it, but that's also the person that's going to have a target on their back. Well, also again, in the film industry, like if the director comes in and says, I think that we should have the giant spider come in through this window and you go, well, if you bring it through this other window, then here are all the other things you could do. Your idea might be better, but also you might've just stepped on his toes and, yeah. or, or yeah. A, a, an insecure director will be like, you can't like, no, do it my way. For or only that reason. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And uh, like, oh, so you're directing it now? That kind of thing. Having somebody like you or having somebody like Steve on your team, the benefit is you throw an idea to you. And as long as everyone's open and honest about it and, and checks their ego at the door. But that's that's the hard thing is these are people who professionally get their egos stroked and it's hard to get them to check their egos at the door. Some of them, not all of them. I've worked with a lot of people who are big in the industry who are wonderful at that. You just never know. Yeah, it's a minefield and it's really critical to know when to keep your mouth shut. Yeah. I think if you want to survive in a corporate environment. 
And Steve doesn't seem like someone who ever would keep his mouth shut in any <laughs> environment. It doesn't matter if he's in the room with James Cameron or Steven Spielberg, he's right. going to speak his mind. Yeah. And I feel like if you're in the room with those guys, you're in the room, that room for a reason, right? Like they should know that Steve is there to make the thing better. And I, I would just say that, you know, Steve was really good at knowing when he had to show respect and be, you know, in, in those kinds of high level meetings, he was good yeah. in those, but what I'll say is he wasn't really invited to a lot of those meetings. And the reason is because I think was because of the way he was in every other meeting. Yeah. And, so, and so it's like, so when you see this is the guy who says what he thinks and is not afraid of anybody and has no regard for authority and even is kind of likes to push back on authority. Well, when the meeting, when it comes up that there's going to be a meeting with Steven Spielberg, the people who are nervous about those meetings are going to be like, yeah, let's, Let's have Steve sit out of on this one. Let's not. Yeah. Let's well, not. And, and I think that in your film, one of the things that kind of comes across, uh, and I hope I'm not mischaracterizing this in any way, but Dennis Murin almost comes across as I'm not going to say his bad guy, but kind of his bet noir in in the film because Dennis Murin keeps winning the Oscars and then not mentioning Steve, who basically built the entire framework by which the Oscar was won. You kind of look at what happened in Jurassic Park and frankly to the entire VFX industry as a direct result of one person and that's Steve. And you kind of go, he never got his due. He didn't even get his due when they were winning Oscars for the work he was doing. Mm -hmm. So talk a little bit. I mean, is Dennis Murin just sort of like the pressure point where Steve was brushing against ILM as an institution? Was it more personal than that? Or, you know, like how, how did that yeah. work? Well, I would, I mean, I think one of the most fascinating things about diving into this story, and I'll say it, that when I first started making this film and knowing I wanted to make this film and I bought a camera and was like, fuck it, I got to do this. I, I know all these people. I know the, the history of this. I know so many people that would be willing to talk about specifically this moment in time between the abyss and, and Jurassic that I wanted to cover. And so I just wanted to do an ensemble thing where it was like everybody talks about what they saw and what they did and, and the, the struggles they had. And that was the film I started making. And Steve was going to be what I always imagined to be like the sort of funniest guy of the, mm. of the ensemble or the guy that's like the clearly like the crazy one in the ensemble. So you weren't even setting out to make a documentary about him. It just no, became no, it, it, no. And, and so as I started gathering those, all the stories and started assembling it, I started to realize that I was making something that was looking a way too much like a making of or DVD mm. extra or a dry reportage of how did they do it and like, frankly it would have been light and magic it would have been almost exactly. almost the identical documentary it, that they made exactly and so i started to realize like i really need a main maybe just make this about one person who has the most interesting arc as a character and then let all the other voices tell us the story of what happened in those years through this guy and so the first person i thought had the most interesting and amazing arc was phil tippett Oh, well, yeah, definitely. Yeah. And so, and so I was like, this guy has the biggest arc of all of them. And in this ensemble is like, he really went from completely invested in traditional effects techniques and had to change his whole studio to computer in a way that must have been an incredible assault on his own ego and system of thought. He, he's about, been very public about that. Yeah, and when and it, so, in fact, yeah, after, after I watched, watched your film, film, one of the things I said to my wife, Alicia, was uh, how incredible is it to make a movie like this where Phil Tippett actually feels like the voice of reason and your main character has a crazier story than Phil Tippett. Right. So I started, I did two interviews with Phil, I think maybe even three, but he, he was great. And I started to sort of assemble the film as if I was going to tell a story about Phil Tippett. And I was, it was going to be his whole arc. And then as I was filming Steve, I started to also see a similar arc in him. And it wasn't until we were filming and I, and he, I started to realize how much his life had gone off the tracks or whatever. Oh my God. Yeah. Because of this one critical moment in his career and in his life that I started to make connections to Life After Pi, the documentary I made about Rhythm and Hughes and, yeah. and how I'm proud of that film because it gave the worker a voice. And I just started to see the film as like, this is an opportunity to tell an all too common story 
for most workers that this is what happens to a lot of people, what happened to Steve. And so I saw it as a way to tell two cautionary tales. One is how you've got to be careful about innovating within corporate structures and basically giving away ideas that are going to make everyone else successful and rich except you. That's one cautionary tale. The other is the cautionary tale of Dennis Murin's story and how do you want to, you know, someday maybe occupy a position in a system the way Dennis did and then drop the ball the way he did in terms of making sure that the people responsible for the work were acknowledged as much as possible. Uh, Maybe this is the most pedestrian thing to point out, but it's like your film started about Phil Tippett and ended up being about Steve, sort of like Jurassic Park. Like it, fo- it follows the, the, the tread, the trajectory of Jurassic Park. And yeah, then, yeah. you know, anyway. So. Yeah. 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 It was quite a journey and it was hard. It was a hard film to shoot because he's my friend for so many years and to see, you know, him going through so much. That's the thing you're, and I feel like you have to be his friend to be the documentarian following, yeah, following the, like where his life is now, which is, you know, he's not like living on the streets or anything, but he's not in that position he was in. Yeah. And he's, he's a million times better now than he, than he was when I was filming. He's, he's so much better. Well, he, you see him getting sober too, right? Yeah. And that, yeah. But I got to say like the challenge of seeing someone at, at a really low point in their life yeah. and then pulling a camera out of the bag and shooting them. Yeah. And they're your friend. And they're your friend. Like I was, I felt so fucked up about that for a while. While I was, how did, how did he feel about it? Well, he knew what I was trying to do. He knew we, we talked a lot about it, about that idea of like, this is about a work. This is a worker story. This is a story about how life can be for a worker the things that can happen to people if they're taken advantage of, or if they, they give too much of themselves, Mm. right. And forget that they're going to be, you know, 70 years old someday and need, need to have a retirement. You know, it's like that kind of stuff was what we, we talked about, about why it's important for me to film him at this moment in his life. And so he got it and he understood that was the goal warts and all and steve's a warts and all guy anyway yeah yeah he's the guy who's like always gonna say like i'm not afraid to share the best and worst parts of me uh with the world because i think he knows innately that it could help well i know this isn't necessarily a thing in your documentary but it's something that i complain about on the podcast all the time you know and i'm in the director's guild and we get residuals writers guild sag they get residuals and here we are in the middle of a writer's guild strike but somebody like Steve Williams comes along, invents the technology that is being used by every VFX company in the world right now. And even like people who are home tinkering with technology that would not exist without him. He doesn't see a penny of that ever. Like he's not getting residuals. He doesn't get a retirement account out of that. Like that, I just kind of feel like a fundamentally unfair thing about this industry is that the movies that he helped create, the ones he personally worked on and the ones that are the great grandchildren of the ideas that he invented... He doesn't really see anything else other than what he got paid back then to do that stuff. And he's barely being acknowledged. That's why I think your your film is kind of important for people to watch, especially people who are interested in the in the film business. But I think even if you're not interested in the film business, the way it works, it's such a great character study of, of what he's going through. And also, like you said, it's what a lot of workers go through. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think it is it is poignant for people in probably any industry. I think it's unfortunately what we're dealing with is power structures and group dynamics that all eventually resemble the same thing, no matter what building you're working in. Yeah. Well, that actually is, could take us a little bit to Life After Pi, which was a documentary. I, if I'm not mistaken, you just released that on YouTube when you finished it. I think that, yes. yeah, you just wanted people to see it. And it was about the downfall of Rhythm and Hughes, who went into bankruptcy while their groundbreaking work on Life of Pi was winning an Oscar. And again, I feel like you were uniquely poised with your VFX background to kind of document. And when did you have the kind of the impetus to make Life After Pi? Because I feel like I feel like you need to now complete your trilogy of your three documentaries about the VFX world. But what, yeah, what, yeah, what, what, that's what was the impetus for Life After Pi? Well, I was working there at the time, was art directing. Like I had just started working at Rhythm and Hughes. Like I was only there for about six months. And then I came in on a Monday morning and everybody was gone. And there were only a few people left. And they were like, oh my God, you're here. 
I'm like, yeah. And they're like, you didn't get let go. I'm like, no, what's happening. And that's when it all started. And, and so what I'll say about life of life after pie is that that was a very, very short window of time when effects workers felt unafraid to speak their mind and mm-hmm. to say what was going on and to tell their stories. And that lasted like maybe a month, maybe three or four weeks before people started quieting down and not wanting to talk. Getting political. Well, yeah, you're angry and you're like, well, I mean, because you're basically covering the way that the studios abuse the VFX companies and put them in a no-win situation where they're competing with all. It's It, it was just a race to the bottom budget-wise and people fighting for this work and everyone was screwed. And I feel like, of course, you would be willing to speak your mind because you're like, I can't have a career if this keeps going. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And also there was a lot of sympathy at that time for the effects workers. And that was a short, short window of time, but it was big at that time that people wanted to really try and understand. So that's why I made that movie. And then it gave me a real taste for documentary filmmaking and how with the right people, the right subjects and the right story, you can make a pretty impactful, dramatic film that, you know, you would typically think you you need, that needs to be scripted, but it literally it's, it's right there in front of you. Well, I, I just looked at the time and we've taken up enough of your time. But again, I, I can't recommend to people highly enough that they uh, check out Jurassic Punk. Where is the place for people to see it where it will benefit you the most? I think Amazon is probably the easiest way to see it and, and also where it probably benefits me the most. Um, and then iTunes uh, mm-hmm. would be the two big ones. Uh, but it is available on uh, lots of platforms. It is available on YouTube to purchase. It is available also on Xbox and a few others. And uh, before we go, is there, do you have a website or uh, social media, anything that you would want to point people towards to find you online, see more of your work? Yeah, you can go to uh, JurassicPunkMovie.com mm-hmm. and then Jurassic Punk Movie is our Instagram. Instagram is kind of fun. I po- try and post to that regularly. So yeah, those are the two, two main places. Well, uh, Scott, it's great to talk to you as always. And congratulations on uh, making an awesome film. It's, it's just an amazing accomplishment. Congratulations. You too, Ben. Thank you so much for having me on. It's been great. Hey, so that was Scott Liebricht. All right. Thank you so much for coming on the show, Scott. And uh, again, for anyone hearing my voice, please check out Jurassic Punk. I, I think I mentioned I saw it on Canopy, but uh, you can find it on Amazon. It actually, Scott said it might benefit him more <laughs> if you go buy it on Amazon. And then also uh, check out Midnight Sun, which if you're the kind of person who's into physical media and who isn't, they just got a re-release on Blu-ray and it's also on Amazon. So it just got remastered and re-released. I know I am getting more into physical media. I have started buying 4K Blu-rays. Even oh. even for some that I already owned, I think that's going to be the I, a couple I've tried now have been like, wow, that looks really, really good. It looks better than my old DVD. So I skipped Blu-ray for a lot of things. But now I'm actually like, well, the you know, here's the thing yeah. about physical media is that mm. I, I understand as much as anyone else why it's great to stream. You don't have to store it. You don't have to go rent it. You don't have to go anywhere. It's just there when you want it. That's cool, except for when it randomly isn't there at all. So I'll give you a very concrete example. One of my favorite John Carpenter movies is Prince of Darkness, and Mm. it was on Shudder, and then it wasn't. And it's like, God damn it, you don't know when you're going to feel like watching this stuff. So it's really not a bad idea, at least for the ones that you really love. I I know back in the DVD days, we would all just go drop 20 bucks on a DVD we'd never heard of before. Uh, I feel like it's more about like, if you really care about something, maybe support it a little bit more, but also have it on hand for when, when the feeling strikes you to watch it. It's so funny that you say John Carpenter, because that was what I just got. They I just live. Got, uh, yes, I'm holding it up right now. Oh. I'm holding up a special box set of They Live from from England, from the UK. Wow. But uh, a lot of these 4K Blu-rays are not region coded, so you can watch them on any of the, the 4K players. I popped it in just to take a look at it. Holy crap, it looks so much better than that DVD from, from way back when. Uh, anyway, so Ben, it is the short end time of the show. And now, short ends. I know we went on this tangent here about, you know, physical media, but what is your obsession this week? What are you all about? 
Well, I just I had an interesting experience this week that I feel like is worth underlining a little bit uh, on our show, and that's a short film that I edited and was ultimately given producer credit because I helped connect the director Gina Powers Hendry with a VFX person you may know, uh, Tom Moser. You, you got the fancy title, yeah. You know, so yeah, uh, so we made a film called Deadhead, and it premiered Saturday night at the Dances with Films Festival. I'd be happy to talk to anyone about Deadhead. I think it's a really cool horror short. To me, in my opinion, it's going to have pretty good legs at the festival level. It's going to probably play a lot of festivals. But it played in the Midnight Shorts competition at Dances with Films. And I don't know that I've talked about Dances with Films on this podcast before, but I've had a couple of projects play there in the past. Future Boyfriend, a project I did in 2016, uh, played there. I just, I, I feel like, you know, we talk a lot about the big festivals, the big brand name festivals, Sundance, Tribeca, South by Southwest, Toronto, whatever. And there's a lot of great regional festivals. And in my opinion, Dances with Films is the best general film festival, meaning that it's like features, it's shorts, it covers all genres. It's not a specialty festival. They are so organized. They have a filmmaker orientation where they have thought of everything that you could possibly ask and they lay it all out for you. They have partnerships with companies that make DCPs. The quality control on on the projection and stuff is great. And when you screen, you screen at Man's Chinese, which even though it is at the Hollywood and Highland uh, miasma of touristy people and homeless people dressed as Elmo, it's still <laughs> the screens themselves. That theater is is an amazing theater with great projection, great sound. And I feel like Dances with Films is the best one that I know of in Los Angeles. I mean, really, I think the only other major festival here is AFI Festival. There are genre festivals like Scream Fest, which is phenomenal, or LA Shorts Fest, which is also a great festival. But if you're listening to the sound of my voice, you're doing a festival run, and you're wondering if you should submit to Dances with Films, I just want to say, having had two projects I was very personally involved with, and then one that I kind of helped out with, it's a really solid festival. It's extremely well curated in this midnight shorts category and midnight shorts is like a a very specific thing where it's like horror comedy gross out just plain weird stuff it's stuff for a rowdy audience and uh the entire program that deadhead played in i thought was like wall to wall every one of them i loved Hmm. just a a huge endorsement for dances with films and if you're uh, a filmmaker looking to submit your film if you're on on film freeway and you're you're hovering over dances with films asking yourself if it's worth uh, submitting to i would say absolutely submit to dances with films is it academy qualifying that's a fine question i actually don't know i can look it up uh it is, according to their FAQ, they are not Academy qualifying. Ah, okay. So you may have to go to another festival, too, if you're just looking for that. But yeah, absolutely. Sounds like a great, uh, you know, regional festival to, to get your stuff seen and to get some nice laurels on your, your project if it gets selected. Awesome. Absolutely. All right. So, Ilya, what is your short end? Uh, I was talking to a client last week who uh, was asking me all about full frame zoom lenses, specifically full frame cinema zoom lenses. This has been a thing that uh, for a while, basically the only real games in town were the ultra expensive zoom lenses from Ingenue and Fuji. And we're talking $40,000 plus zoom lenses, very Mm -hmm. expensive, rather large. The Fuji's though, actually amazing. They actually shrunk the size quite a bit compared to what like Ingenue was doing. And then Canon got into the game, basically came up with absolutely professional grade, uh, super high quality zooms. They called the flex zooms. And they came in about half that price, you know, low 20s, that sort of thing. And then uh, a couple of Chinese companies got into the full frame zoom market, most notably a company called DZO and another one called Lawa, who just just this week started shipping their lenses. Now, DCO uh, not, uh, was was a sponsor of the show for some time. They were a sponsor of the show for, for a long time. So I have to say that if you weren't really tracking this particular segment of the cinema lens market, you could be forgiven because there hasn't been a lot of change all that much. And a lot of the stuff that's been produced is really, really pricey. But DZO came out with these lenses called Kata, and the Kata were only available in you know DSLR mount. They did eventually come out with a PL mount version they called the Kata Ace, and Laowa has basically come out with a set of lenses they call the Rangers, which are also available in PL mount. And so you've got really four pretty decent sized companies now all building sub $50,000 lenses, and in the case of DZO and Laowa, significantly under $50,000, like lenses are under $3,000 a piece. 
Hmm. So it's very interesting. The quality of all these lenses is surprisingly good. Now, you absolutely do get what you pay for, but I know some people who've been buying the Canon Flex zooms, and it's got a really interesting feature in that you can actually buy a different rear section, which is user changeable, which turns it into a Super 35 lens that gets faster. So you get a wider field of view a little bit, and your 2.4 lens now becomes a 1.7 zoom, which is amazing. And on the the inexpensive entry-level full-frame zooms from uh, Laowa and DZO, those are are like 2.9 stops. But man, all of them are really solid. And I'm pretty excited for Laowa in particular, because just this week, they sh- I got I saw the, the notice that the first set that we had sold uh, shipped out. So someone's about to be really happy if they you know haven't received the lenses yet. I know that some lenses are, are coming in from Laowa. And we're doing a pre-order for 99 bucks over at Hot Rod Cameras. But all of the full frame zoom lenses these days at all these different price points are deeply impressive. And if you're in the Los Angeles Burbank area and you'd like to demo some of these, I know that we keep at least three of them in-house all the time now because of their popularity. So yeah, you could come into Hot Rod Cameras and you can test and demo some of these different lenses and you can check it out. I know we've got some Canons. I know we've got some uh, DZOs. I know that Alawas are on their way to us. So we do occasionally get the calls for Fuji, but I'd say that anyone who's really looking at this space, it's really impressive to see what can be done now for what amount of dollars. And I think the people who are bemoaning, oh, there isn't really anything out there anymore, certainly in the entry-level cinema lens market, can't say that. Now, I mean, you don't have to just go with a DSLR sort of lens and you don't have to go with a a really expensive, professional, uber-high quality grade. There's some really good options at all these different price points. The market's matured. And I definitely think that anyone who's interested in those things should check it out, especially when you don't have that much scratch. I mean, at $3,000, these are the same sort of price is like some DSLR lenses. So I, I think it's amazing. It's worth worth checking how, out. How is it that they're able to manufacture them that cheaply? Well, there are definitely some corners that are cut, but at the same time, will most people see them? And optically, you're not looking at huge differences, but you are looking at pretty big difference in mechanics. The mechanics tend to be very different between these lenses. And certainly the, the Chinese manufacturers of uh, DZO and uh, Laowa, definitely the DZO might be the best value, especially that original Kata, because um, it's in sort of like this plastic housing. It doesn't have a PL mount, but if you can live with that, it has the same optics as their much you know more robust peel mount version and then Lawa's is not much more expensive the only oh and here's a nice thing about the Lawa the the range is incredible it'll take you from 28 all the way to 180 between the two lenses which is just bonkers it's not exactly apples to apples with like a Fuji Permista and it's certainly not either with the Canon but if you're talking about DZO and Lawa and you're looking at the two man they're both really really good lenses we've been using some of these lenses internally for our own sort of like uh, BTS and social media production they're they're good lenses and uh, they don't cost a lot and if you would kind of been saying well i'm just gonna stick with primes and the zooms are too much money you owe it to yourself to take a look at these I, I'm, I'm really you know kind of blown away anyway so ben i think it's gonna be about do us for this episode uh where can people find you if they want to look you up uh please go to benrock.com you can find all my socials my social media uh although i, I did just join blue sky literally today the jack dorsey uh the, his new twitter thing so we'll see if that actually takes off check out my reel i have a directing reel up there benrock.com check it out uh Ilya, where can people find you they can find me over at hot rod cameras hotrodcameras.com but uh actually i'm just gonna say uh linkedin at Ilya friedman at linkedin you know uh i've decided i'm gonna lean into linkedin linkedin is actually uh it's remarkable i probably had like nine messages this week i've had a lot of people starting to yeah. use it lately so i'm gonna i'm gonna check it out see i'm gonna you know actually give it a shot see how it goes yeah, LinkedIn isn't bad. I mean, it's it's all business stuff, and uh, I find that a lot of people who reach out to me on LinkedIn uh, literally don't know anything about what I who I am or what I do. They're just like tr- trying to get me yeah. to hire them for something. But uh, mm. no, but I've actually like made friends on LinkedIn. It's it's not a bad service. Anyway, so Ilya, who should we thank this week? Hey, let's thank Ben Katz. Ben Katz at chopping and slicing and dicing all these episodes together, trying to make us not sound foolish. He's doing a, a pretty darn good job with that too, I'd say. Let's thank Kezal Atrachi, who made all the music in this episode and elevates the level of our show to way beyond what it would be if we had canned music. He gives mm. us custom, incredible music, which I- Buddha canned I'm, music. 
Yeah, exactly. And then, of course, let's thank Alana Cody, producer extraordinaire who has been uh, keeping us busy with interviews and screenings and everything. I, you know, I, this- got, I got another one coming up and I had a screening. The only time I could go to it was uh, 1040 on a Sunday Woo, uh, right. for uh, an interview that we have coming up. You know, that is one thing about Portland. They don't really have the morning screenings here. So, you know, it's uh, I, I can't do the morning screenings. It's tougher. It's tough to get in to see oh, some man. things. I know. I think that's the first time you've mentioned that you live in Portland on the podcast. No, I sure mentioned it before. I'm pretty oh. sure I mentioned it. Yeah, I don't, I don't think, think this ever is have. The, oh, well, you know, if, if people are really tracking me, yes, I, I've been living in Portland now for a year. But uh, Oh, my God. Has it been a year? I moved in July. So, yeah. It's, oh, uh, my it's God. I know. It's, it goes fast. Well, it doesn't really feel like it because I'm in Los Angeles every month at the shop. So it's uh, it's constantly. Yeah. yeah it's, and I talk to you once a week. I talk to you more than most of the people I know who live in L.A. So. Yeah, that's uh, that, that's true, too. All right. So, Ben, I think that's just about going to do us. You want to take us out? Thanks for listening. This has been the Cinematography Podcast, presented by Hot Rod Cameras. Find your next camera, lens, or accessory on the web at hotrodcameras.com. Don't forget to subscribe to our show on iTunes and connect with us on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for listening.